It's been a while since we've done this uh, this way, you know, in terms of just a regular show recorded and yeah. all that stuff. Uh, we've been doing too many live shows lately, so now we get to screw up and then, you know, we edit things and look really, really smart and all that stuff, right? Yeah, should I tell Jen to turn the AC up because I can already hear it's blowing in the background. Should I cut that out? <laughs> <laughs> no, we're fine. Everybody will be okay with that. you got to stay cool down in Florida, yeah, and the rest of us have to put the heat on right now. But uh, I'll tell you something. Uh, the travel uh, just doesn't end. Uh, San Antonio was a great time. Coach Urban, uh, was really great meeting him. Uh, let him know, you know just how impressed I was with the program, the respect uh, his players gave and everything else down there. And uh, you know, getting to sit down with uh, the Horn family and also Harris Goods family as well on Saturday night to tell them a little bit more about you know what's next. And we'll hint at what's next a little bit later on in the show. But some things don't change at all, such as our friend Todd Crawford, who decided he would go a little over the top with the memes this week. Uh, Todd, really? Oh, yeah. I mean... Really, Todd? Uh, yeah, let's just leave it at that. Uh, oh, JB, man. What, you know, what are your insights here? You had to watch me gallivant around the Springfield and to San Antonio and all that stuff. I mean, are we, are we going to get to see you at all this season? People are asking, where's JB again? Yeah, I mean, probably not. I mean, I think that week 11 trip was my one and done. Just everything I've got going here on the home front and, and otherwise will probably keep me grounded, unfortunately. So I'll just keep uh, watching from afar. Um, you know, at least I know what I'm talking about. I understand that I'm tied with Pat Coleman. I know I'm not in the official D3Football.com ranking pool, but my record is the same as his. And it probably would be one better if I just went with my brain but, hey, Joey Valadez was such a great guest. I couldn't pick against Linfield, even though I had a feeling the Royals might be the team there. But um, we'll have to see how it goes for this next round. We're in the Elite Eight. I got to say, it's Joel Valadez. Otherwise, his mom's going to write us uh, and uh, tell Valadez, us uh, that we were yeah, okay. completely wrong on that one. But, uh, hey, listen, the, one of the depressing parts about this whole thing is we are losing viewers along the way here. Uh, and it was kind of sad uh, as I was traveling this weekend and thinking about losing the Carnegie Mellon fans out there and Coach Larson and, you know, losing Trinity from this whole ride right now. Hopefully they're still watching and interested to see what happens next. But uh, we understand the pool dries up a little bit here. But we go all the way to the Stag Bowl here on Season 15 of In the Huddle. So, JB, I, I almost forget how to do this. Uh, it's a Crunch Time episode, so we'll have Crunch Time coming up in just a few minutes. But um, something about a 30,000-foot view by JB that we've uh, really kind of trademarked here. It's funny, the yeah, right. the branding we've done on this show over the years. And uh, here it is, ladies and gentlemen, JB's 30,000-foot view of week 13. Uh, well, yeah, it's week 13. Holy cow. Week 13. This, yeah, yeah. time is flying by here. Go ahead. Yeah, it's flying by, and I guess, you know, depending on how you look at things, there were certain teams that we thought would win that 
have punched their tickets into the quarterfinals. No surprises there. Some great seasons for certain teams that some people thought may or may not should have been there and ended. But still, you can't take away um, the accomplishments of, of these teams that have moved you know, this far into the tournament. I thought Springfield's performance against Ithaca on Saturday was amazing. The way they came and fought with a backup quarterback and you know some banged up guys. I mean, what a gutsy performance by Coach Sarasulo and company. Uh, it, it really took a couple of amazing individual efforts by Justin Leonard Osborne and, and A.J. Wingfield to save Ithaca. Uh, that day well plus the, the defense and the fact that they forced three fumbles turnovers in the playoffs will always you know c- you know come back to bite you we saw that with with Utica and Mount Union and I think to a certain extent it, it, it might have fueled the the Del Val comeback and the Yaggies looked like they were in trouble there for a while but man that's this Louis Berrios and company this team they just find ways to keep fighting and, and keep winning and after all these weeks of sort of saying what's going on with the kicking game in Del Val they had a guy come in, not miss a single kick. We'll talk about him in a little while, I'm pretty sure. Great weekend of football, though. Lots of excitement and um, a few surprises along the way. But there's going to be some new teams, potentially, in the semifinals this year. And that's kind of cool. A couple things about Springfield. Our friend Brian McGoffin uh, kind of wrote uh, something that I found uh, interesting about the cruelty of football uh, when it gets down to it, that in the first 700 minutes of football this season, Springfield had three turnovers by fumble. In the final 60 minutes of the season, Springfield had three turnovers by fumble. And so there is the cruelty of football at times. Uh, That said, uh, also Coach Webster, the offensive coordinator at Springfield, yeah. Uh, resigned uh, his post. Uh, he will be missed. Uh, he oh, always a character. Uh, he actually uh, sent me along with some, uh, let's say, beverages uh, that I, I guess uh, he his wife uh, helps uh, to create, and uh, oh, really? it's a little you know parting like gift from Springfield. Yes, you come on up. I'm telling you, come on up. We'll be uh, we'll drive down to uh, Naples together after that. Uh, after. Uh, that wears off, of course. Um, so, uh, Webster, we uh, will miss you. Uh, hopefully it's on your terms. We always hope that. Uh, it, but football's a cruel game in a lot of ways, and we've seen things that aren't that. So, in this case, a lot of quotes from him, Coach Cerezulo, uh, A.D. Poisson. So, uh, it seems like everybody was on the same page uh, for that exit. Speaking about exits, uh, well, let's actually go to an entrance. Let's enter into... Crunch time for week 13 of the 2022 Division Three college football season. That's the second round of the NCAA playoffs. Best 13 I've ever seen right there by you, sir. Uh, we're going to start our <laughs> crunch time here with Wartburg at St. John's. And uh, in the second quarter, it was Carter Henry getting this 29-yard touchdown pass from Niall McLaughlin to make it 16-6 in favor of Wartburg. We'll go to the third quarter now as Parker Rockford gets the 12-yard scoop and score, 23-6 Wartburg. But St. John's will make a comeback here. 7.39 left third quarter, Tony Underwood with a four-yard touchdown run makes it 23-13. Then six minutes later, Troy Fetima gets a 17-yard touchdown run. It's 23-20, Wartburg hanging on here. But look at these two plays. Early in the fourth quarter, 
Aaron Severson is intercepted by Trent Rowling, and that is going to lead into another possession later on without any scoring from Wartburg. His fourth and 16 play, Aaron Severson intercepted again by Anton Centillion, and that would do it. The final score, Wartburg 23, St. John's 20 in the upset. Severson 22 for 36, 244 yards, four interceptions. Hunter Klassen 24 rushes, 88 yards, one rushing touchdown. Then it's Aurora at Alma. Alma gets this 65-yard touchdown pass from Carter St. John to Devin Frenchko excuse me, to make it 7-6 in favor of Aurora as the extra point was missed by Alma. But watch what happens here in the second quarter. First, James Martino gets a 24-yard touchdown pass from Josh Swanson, 14-6 Aurora. Then, three minutes later, Jackson Johnson, a three-yard touchdown pass from Swanson. It's 21-6. Four minutes later, Jacay Cheriton gets a five-yard touchdown run. It's 28-6 Aurora. 27 points in the second quarter for Aurora, capped off by Cameron Moore getting a 17-yard touchdown pass from Josh Swanson. 34-6 there. Final score, my goodness, Aurora 48 Alma 26, Swanson 300 total yards, four passing, one rushing touchdown, and an interception. Carter St. John 298 total yards, two passing, one rushing touchdowns, and an interception for Alma. We'll go also, actually, you know what, JB, talk to us about uh, the top left uh, bracket here. I, I was going to jump ahead here, but let's get some uh, color commentary from you on that part of the bracket. Well, yeah, I mean, I think what you saw with Swanson and this Aurora offense is that they are, they can play with anybody, and they really took it to um, to Alma. It was a 7-6 game there for a little while, and all of a sudden, bam, 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 it's 34-6 to at halftime. You know, Swanson with four, five touchdowns on the day. Um, Carter, you know, Carter St. John had a good game with three touchdowns of his own, but just too much offense from the Spartans. And ultimately, yeah, with Wartburg, it really seems like their defense might have to carry the load the rest of the way. They did lose their quarterback halfway through this game, but the, the second string guy came in, did a good job. As long as you have a, a running back, too, like Hunter Klassen, who can you know pound the rock and, and get you a touchdown here and there, this team's going to have a chance. I, I really have a feeling that this Wartburg team might punch their ticket to this Stag Bowl. We'll have to wait another couple weeks, but I like the way they play football. I'll tell you, I'm sure everybody in their bracket pickums had Wartburg hosting Aurora in their third round spot there. I, oh, yeah, I, sure. yeah I, I sure did. <laughs> bracket Buster Central. My goodness. So let's go on now to the lower left-hand bracket where Utica took on Mount Union. And this was all Mount Union, 251 left in the first quarter. Orion Finley gets a 15-yard touchdown pass from Braxton Plunk. That made it 14-0 in favor of Mount Union. Then let's look at the Wayne Ruby show yet again. Three minutes into the second half, Braxton Plunk finds him from 29 yards out to make it 31-0 in favor of Mount Union. And then it's with 2.22 left in that third quarter, Wayne Ruby Jr., a 19-yard touchdown pass from Braxton Plunk to make it 38-0. Final score, Mount Union beats Utica 45-7. Plunk, 25 for 30, 191 yards, three passing touchdowns. Utica's Braden Zendlovic, 25 for 47, 301 yards, one passing touchdown, but three interceptions. Obviously helped sink that ship in that game. Then a thriller, Randolph-Macon at Delaware Valley. We'll fast forward to the second quarter, 4.06 left. It's David Wallace with the 64-yard touchdown pass from Andrew Isle 
in for Drew Campanelli, who did not start in this game, and that made it an 11-10 game in favor of uh, Delaware Valley still. Del Val scores before halftime. It's Jahir Johnson with a 41-yard touchdown pass from Louis Berrios IV, 18-10 Del Val. Just before halftime, Randolph Macon equalizes with 25 seconds left. Zach Bowman, 32 yards from Andrew Isle. It's 18 apiece at the break. Third quarter, five minutes into it, Andrew Isle, a one-yard touchdown run, gives Randolph Macon a 25-18 lead, but that's not it. As with 2.54 left, Andrew Isle, again, a three-yard touchdown run. 32-18 Macon. Well, the fourth quarter was Del Val's time. 14-13 left in the fourth. Louis Berrios, the fourth, a five-yard touchdown run. It's 32-25 in favor of Randolph Macon. Then 4.07 left in the fourth quarter. Berrios pushes forward. He's in. Touchdown. Second touchdown of the day for Louis Berrios. It's a one-point game. Berrios with a one-yard touchdown run ties the game. It's 32 apiece. They go down to the wire. 24 seconds left. Snap. Looking. Throwing. Caught. Touchdown. Jahair Johnson. And the Aggies have taken the lead. Jahir Johnson, a 10-yard touchdown pass from Louis Berrios the fourth. 39-32, Del Val with three straight touchdowns in the fourth quarter to take that seven-point lead. And then one last chance here for Randolph Macon as Andrew Isle cannot find David Wallace on the third and four play, the final play of the game. 39-32 final in favor of Delaware Valley. Berrios, 359 total yards, two passing touchdowns, two rushing touchdowns. Nick Hale from Randolph-Macon, 117 total yards. And Yusuf Aladinov uh, gets two sacks inside four and a half tackles for loss for Del Val. JB, the lower left bracket. Uh, we get a little bit of an interesting result on Sunday from all this. More on that later. But let's look at the games that got played as Mount Union and Del Val had very different days but both won. Yeah, and, I, and to anyone out there who wants to say that Utica would lose to some fifth place OAC team because of that score, you guys can go take a flying leap. I mean, every team, I have one watching D3 football for three, 30 years now. Every team that plays Mount Union for the first time usually gets undressed because they just, they're not used to the speed. If that game was played again in a week, it would be a different story. It'll be a learning experience for the Pioneers, and they should be really proud of the season that they had and the way they represented their conference in the Empire 8. Yeah, sure, they made some mistakes in that game. There were some plays they would have liked to have gotten back. But Mountain Union and Baldwin Wallace and John Carroll and all these other teams aren't better than the entire Empire 8 because of this one result. So get over yourselves, OAC fans, if you feel that that's the case. Is Mount Union a great program? Yes, of course. They're one of the elite of Division III. Um, we've seen programs you know, schedule them and, and move up. But then we've also seen some weird situations where Mount Union's schedule may have actually cost them um, in this whole scheduling situation. DelVal digging deep at home, uh, struggled a little bit, and that defensive line came up with some big plays. Barrios came up with some big plays. The one thing I'm a little nervous about with this matchup between the Raiders and the Aggies, though, is that Randolph-Macon had some success in, in, in throwing the ball, and they're going to have to really lock down. I mean, Ruby is one of the best, if not the best receiver in the country, next to maybe a K.J. Miller or Brandon Jordan. The, this Raiders offense is going to be coming at them. That Allen... 
Aladdin off, and the Nobio brothers are going to have to be on their on their game and try to overpower this fast offensive line of, of Mount Union. They're not really big, but they have great technique. They get off the ball quickly, and that's going to be a really epic matchup. It could be a shootout, sort of like what we saw with the Randolph-Macon uh, Del Val game. We'll go to the upper right-hand bracket as Carnegie Mellon visited North Central. Two minutes, 35 seconds left, first quarter. Chris Hughes, a 47-yard touchdown pass from Ben Mills. This is not how people expected the first quarter to go as Carnegie Mellon held a 7-0 lead. North Central would equalize three minutes into the second quarter. It's D'Angelo Hardy getting a two-yard touchdown pass from Luke Lanon to make it seven apiece. Six minutes later, Ethan Greenfield, the bowling ball that he is. The one-yard touchdown run makes it 14-7. That would be the halftime score. That would be the end of three-quarters score as well. But seven seconds into the fourth quarter, there's Ethan Greenfield one more time, making it 21-7 in favor of North Central. The icing on the cake with five minutes, four seconds left fourth quarter. Luke Lanin, a 72-yard touchdown run. 28-7 in favor of North Central, and that would be the final score as Greenfield gets 21 rushes for 135 yards, two rushing touchdowns. Ben Mills for Carnegie Mellon, 8 for 17, 79 yards, and one passing touchdown, though more than half of those passing yards were on the touchdown in the first quarter. Springfield visited Ithaca. And another game that started out differently than expected as two minutes into it, DJ Brown gets a 45-yard pick six in this game. Springfield has a 7-0 lead early. They'd add on to it. With 8.25 left, Christian Hutcher gets a 23-yard field goal to add on to his record-breaking season. 10-0 there. He'd add but one later on as well. Uh, but first, I'll tell you about Jake Williams' three-yard touchdown run with 2.46 left in the first quarter. 10-7 Springfield leads. Here's Hutcher's 29-yard field goal. 13-7, 10 seconds into the second quarter. Springfield leads. But watch what happens here as Armando Torres uh, fumbles the ball, recovered by Ben Stola for Ithaca, and they would cash in on that with 8.18 left in the second quarter. Jalen Leonard Osborne makes it a 14-13 game with a three-yard touchdown run. Ithaca gets their first lead there. They would extend it with 5.22 left as Jalen Leonard Osborne gets a 49-yard touchdown pass from A.J. Wingfield. 21-13 Ithaca leads. Just before halftime, though, Springfield's Joseph Canizero makes it close. A one-yard touchdown run, 21-20. Ithaca leads. That would be the halftime score. But here's where things got problematic as Arson Shetefan fumbles the ball. And uh, it was forced by Michael Rooms. And it's taken by Tommy Moran of Ithaca. They would convert that. Again, it's Jalen Leonard Osborne, the 46-yard touchdown pass from Billy Tedeschi, and that was 28-20 Ithaca. They would control the game from there, 31-20. Ithaca wins and repels a really strong challenge by Springfield. Jalen Leonard Osborne, 121 total yards, one rushing, two receiving touchdowns, and Armando Torres, 155, 155 total yards, but the three fumbles by the Springfield offense. Obviously a problem there. JB, I'll tell you, uh, you know, just, again, a great season for Springfield, the way they played with two losses into the playoffs and almost lasted into the third round. I mean, they got that close. Good try by them, but Ithaca now has a tough job in front of them as North Central is waiting to host them. Well, I mean, I imagine Coach Torper and company will be really happy that 
coach Larson, who I thought did an amazing job with the Tartans this year. Maybe we'll get to some in the huddle postseason superlatives later on, but Larson might be my coach of the year after the, the game plan and how well his team played in Naperville. Uh, they gave the they they gave the bombers the script. Uh, Hughes, the tight end, um, did basically what uh, Brandon Jordan did to Beasley in the Stag Bowl last season. If you can get a, a bigger, stronger athlete on the on the secondary, Hughes won all his one one on one matchups. The problem was <laughs> the defensive line for North Central was so strong that they were just you know beating up uh, Mills and and the rest of that, that backfield. So if the, if, if the Bombers' big offensive line can hold up, they have a chance because they do have certain athletes that can create matchup problems like, like Os, uh, Leonard Osborne and others. But, I mean, I, we may not see it until the semifinal round, but the script on how to beat the Cardinals was, very, was pretty much presented on Saturday. They just were a little too overpowering, but you got to give um, the Tartans a lot of credit for how they fought. And... Uh, that game, I, you know, 28 to seven was the final, but it, it felt a lot closer for a long time. And, and I think the Cardinals will admit that that was the best team that they had faced all season. I, you have to think so, just based on score alone, right there. Let's move on. Wheaton, maybe the the one that was closest to it. I, I should probably throw them into the mix because they did get a little close at times mm -hmm. in that game. Lower right brackets, Mary Harden Baylor at Trinity. And 349 left in the first quarter. It's KJ Miller getting this 20-yard touchdown pass from Kyle King to make it 7-0 in favor of UMHB. Second quarter, they would add on with this Anthony Avila 31-yard field goal despite the wind. It was about 20 miles per hour at times in the first half. 10-0, Mary Harden Baylor. Third quarter, 1433 left. Jamal Hamilton, a 60-yard touchdown pass from Kyle King, but watch his block. Brandon Jordan with seven with the uh, big block number twenty one there, a seventeen zero lead by UMHB. This game is over. A lot of people thought, but no, it was not. Five minutes into the third quarter, Cole Monago with a thirty three yard touchdown pass from Tucker Horn, seventeen to seven. Brandon Jordan gets his own touchdown though. Three minutes later, a forty five yard touchdown pass from Kyle King runs down that other sideline again. 24-7 in favor of UMHB. That would be the end of UMHB scoring, so watch Trinity here. 121 left third quarter. Blake Lynn gets his 23-yard field goal, 24-10. Then fourth quarter, 11:34 left. Matthew Kovacevic gets a 13-yard touchdown pass from Tucker Horn, 24-17. They thought they could put away the game to UMHB, but this field goal attempt from 37 yards Anthony Avila goes wide left, no good, and that keeps things alive for Trinity. Let's watch what happens here, though, as the defense for UMHB takes charge as Trinity got to the 25-yard line first a sack of 14 yards. Then they get another sack with just seven seconds left and all the timeouts exhausted. They cannot get the ball snapped. That would do it. Close, but no cigar for Trinity. They lose this one 24-17 as UMHB is victorious. Tucker Horn, 26-38, 282 yards, two passing touchdowns. Kyle King, 19-34, for 289 yards, three passing touchdowns in the game. Finally, Bethel at Linfield. Second quarter, 10-49 left, Jaron Rosti. What a season he's having once those injuries are shaken a little bit. Two-yard touchdown run, 14-6 in favor of Bethel. Linfield would respond. 7.52 left second quarter. Joel Valadez, 
throwing the ball to Devin Murray. An 11-yard touchdown run or pass there was 14-13 in favor of Bethel still at halftime. Third quarter, it was Joey Kidder. 4.15 left, he gets an 11-yard touchdown pass from Rosti, 24-13 in favor of Bethel. And then fourth quarter, 10.42 left, Joey Kidder, 65-yard touchdown pass from Rosti, makes it 30-13. That was the final in favor of Bethel. Rosti, 19 for 24, 214 yards, three passing touchdowns. Bethel's defense was six sacks. That's inside nine tackles for loss, and they had two interceptions. Blake Eaton for Linfield, 19 for 28. 161 yards. The lower right bracket ends up being Bethel visiting Mary Harden Baylor, who thought they were done hosting probably for these playoffs. Not so much. Yeah. We're in that in a bit, but that's what the lineup is. And you got to get points to Trinity for trying that comeback the way they did there. Yeah, I mean, and what an impressive performance by Tucker Horn, who was just getting clobbered all game by the. Uh, Crusaders defensive line and linebackers he, he took some pretty rough hits he's one of the, the toughest kids I've seen this whole season just uh, has a heart of a lion and just keeps fighting to the bitter end they just basically ran out ran out of time if they had maybe another minute on the clock this game would have gone into OT and who knows what would have happened um, but you know once again the Crusaders are the defending champs for a reason and they seem to be clicking right at the right time and they'll be you know favored I think once again with even with the strength of this this Bethel team it's really hard to win it's Frank did anyone is anyone like sending a, a, a private jet or a chartered flight for you to go down to Belton because the Crusaders always seem to win when you're in the audience so I would imagine that the Alumni Association would be trying to like helicopter or something get the mayor in town through some sort of special thing you're like their good luck charm Frank yeah not so much uh but <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think that's all I got, really, to be honest with you. And that way, I'll just say that was crunch time for week 13 of the 2022 Division III college football season, round two of the playoffs. JB, it's time for your MVPs. And I'll tell you, yes. we have somebody that looks like a prototypical football player. Uh, and then we've got... A couple guys that are definitely shown the facial hair out the wazoo. So uh, let's see who we got here. First off, oh, there's that Jalen Leonard Osborne guy from Ithaca. Uh, you know, he definitely helped them get things on track in that second half that, when that they needed pass, it. That pass was tipped. The pass that was tipped it, that he caught to help basically give them that lead was probably the most incredible play, at least from a single you know, shot situation that I saw all weekend. Um, and the, the thing that was really interesting too, Frank, I, we, we didn't cover it in the highlights, but he dropped a sure touchdown early on that would have gotten Ithaca the, uh, back in the game when they were struggling early on. Didn't matter. He hung in there and basically accounted for 18 points in an 11-point game. So he got my MVP for that. He, he came back and really made some great plays, especially that one-handed tip you know, catch <laughs> through ball, you know, pop fly that he gave to himself and ran down the, the sideline was really impressive. On the defensive side, I felt that North Central's Dan Gilroy, even though he may not have had all the stats, if you watch this team play, he's like a, just, he has to be double teamed every time. And, and maybe it didn't reflect in the stat sheet, but I swear when I watched that game, the real turning point was when he came through. There was like a basically a, a, a multiple hit situation where 
um, you know, Mills was sacked and ultimately fumbled the ball. That helped get um, North Central offense on the short field. They scored, and then they kind of never looked back. I'm pretty sure it was Gilroy who made that hit. And, uh, you know, you saw him in person, Frank. Mills is a big guy. Like, he's like a 230, 240-pound quarterback, and Gilroy just crushed him. <laughs> you know, just, this guy is so big and athletic and strong. He's just a monster out there. So uh, he's got really nice hair, too. Apparently, he's got the, he's got the locks. you got to like that. He looks like he could have been on Game of Thrones or something. Um, and then finally, uh, Pat Morin. We've, we've kind of teased DelVal all season with their struggles with the PAT, kicking and field goals and all this stuff. But Moran, on a day where they really needed him, came up with the seven points, which ultimately was the differential of this game, was a touchdown. He was perfect on his PATs. He kicked a field goal. And that was a big reason why DelVal was able to hang around and come back and win this game. Speaking about perfect, that was a perfect 8-0 no on the week. Oh, wait. Yeah, no, actually I was not. 7-1 um, you, 5-3 me. I was, yeah, you were. Plus 12, though, you are, as, again, there are not enough games left for me to catch you, so we're just playing it for fun from here on out. So uh, let's talk about what happened here on Sunday because uh, normally when we have done our discussions with the chairs and whatnot uh, over time, the selection chairs, um, we found out that the process they use is they pick the one seeds, they pick the two seeds, sort of try to rank them in a way where if they can get away with it, they'll put them on either side of each other on a bracket or on a quadrant. So you've got ones and the twos, and then they would build pods around the ones and the twos. And then, you know, in the third round, essentially, if there needed to be travel, usually the NCAA understood that some travel was unavoidable uh, in terms of flights in the third round. Now, we generally could tell who the one seeds always were because in the upper brackets, it was always the top team. On the lower brackets, we've seen it either be both the top teams or both the bottom teams. Yeah, usually we could figure it out with a little bit of common knowledge. Okay, well, then something happened this go around where first off, we couldn't even find out who the number one seeds were from the chair. And a chair is a friend. And so I'm being honest, he did not reveal to me or anybody else officially who the number one seeds were. Okay, so we're going to take a fair guess here that St. John's was the number one seed in the upper left. So they were the upper team. We kind of know right now that North Central was the number one team in the upper right because Ithaca's traveling. We know the bottom right, from what we understand at least, from uh, things that got said on Sunday, that Trinity would have hosted Linfield. So Trinity was the one seed in the bottom right bracket. So they were the upper team there. That's great. Here's the problem. Mount Union was the upper team in the bottom left bracket. And they're traveling to DelVal, who is the bottom team in that bracket in terms of bracket placement. I really can't explain that. I would love to be able to. But here's the problem that gets created. This is not a good travel time of the season. This is Thanksgiving holidays. This is beginning of Christmas stuff and everything else. Weather gets influencing uh, at this point in time as well in the north and the northeast. And to play these guessing games on who's going to host how isn't fair to the fans, isn't fair to the schools to a certain degree, isn't uh, fair to the staffs of these 
schools that have to help man these games when they get played. So this whole gotcha scenario of who hosts how, especially in the first three rounds, is kind of BS as far as I'm concerned. It's not fair, and it actually has ramifications. Now, let me be honest. Mount Union should be traveling this week. The strength of schedule was wildly different compared to Del Val's, and Del Val, for what it's worth, in Region 1 had three ranked opponents, whereas Mount Union had two. We all know that Region 1 underperformed, and that's why they could even get three ranked opponents in Region 1. There were four MAC teams ranked out of seven teams, folks. Okay, that's not really supposed to happen, and that shouldn't have happened. And it happened, so whatever. Okay, we'll live with it. But the criteria clearly favored Del Val. I get it. The problem is that there is no reason we shouldn't have been indicated by, or gotten an indication, I should say, by the selection committee early on that this was the case. There's no reason that they shouldn't be putting the seed numbers next to the eight teams in each quadrant, one through eight, and we all understand as fans that have been educated in this process over the years now that because of geography and money, sometimes number one will play number two or number three in the first round. We get it. We understand it. But at least then we are able to understand if this team wins and that team wins, the host would be the team with the better seed. That works until semifinals. I get that too. But the team with the better seed in semifinals should host also. And if there's a tie, then the committee decides. But this is so amateurish what's going on with the lack of seeds. This whole we don't see teams, you do see teams because you're basically doing it at every Sunday. You don't need to do it on every Sunday. Do it on the first Sunday when you reveal the teams. You did it 16 or 17 years ago and every year before that. Why can't you do it now? Your thoughts? Well, you know, I wish there was a show where every year someone interviewed the chair of the NCAA championship committee and asked questions and they explained exactly what their process was and revealed some of the quote unquote trade secrets of how this whole thing works. And, you know, hey, wait a minute. We've been doing that since 2008. And guess selection what? committee though. It's, well, selection committee. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But still, I mean, it's one of these things. It's 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 not. There's no secrets anymore. I mean, and but the fact that there's this little sort of, you know, don't pay attention to the man behind the curtain stuff still going on in 2022, is ridiculous. So, um, I'll try to be evergreen, like our friend Keith McMillan said, with my just yep comment. I I do agree with you, Frank. I just feel like it's silly that there are still people in Annapolis and around the country that feel like they need to somehow cloak and dagger this thing. It's really unnecessary. All the D3 football fans out there, maybe not the ones with, you know, first years on teams know about this stuff because they're getting into it for the first time. But most of us who've been following the sport for a long time, it's not rocket science. Put the seeds on there. Come on, man. So number two thing I want to talk about is just how bad the strength of schedule metric really is when they're applying it as a better number is always better because it's not. Okay, 
teams in 10-team conferences, go look at Baldwin Wallace's strength of schedule, folks. They had basically what would have been the best or nearly best possible strength of schedule for a team in a 10-team conference because they played undefeated at the time, Mount St. Joseph, at the time of the end of the regular season, I should say. And they end up with around a 550 strength of schedule. You're not going to go up much from that ever. DelVal was in the 570s. Why? Because they had multiple, two out-of-conference games. And that's the whole thing. The more out-of-conference games you have, the more possibility you have that your SOS is higher. Mount Union, even if they played a 7-3 team, let's say, everybody wants to say, oh, you picked Defiance and that, that did you in. No, actually, it didn't. It didn't help matters, certainly. But a 7-3 team would have also been a problem because their numbers wouldn't have broken 530 probably, maybe 540 in the best case scenario. That's still, according to this committee, because Johns Hopkins found this out the hard way when it was against Utica and they had a 0.025 differential, 0.03, 0.04 was a major differential, enough to basically take away the slight advantage they had in regionally ranked opponents that uh, Johns Hopkins had with Susquehanna being the team they lost to by two points. So again, the point here is this. Strength of schedule as a metric, if you're using it directly, is again, BS. And it looks like this committee did that. Instead of t doing what the last committees had done, Absolutely. which is honoring the you know, centennial conferences, 10 game or 10 team, uh, you know, nine game scheduling conference, uh, the OAC, etc. So am I you know, saying they got it wrong with Mount Union? No, but what I'm saying is that the metric that's being most cited about this whole thing is a metric that needs to be reconsidered because, again, if they played a 7-3 team, I would argue to you the result would have been exactly the same and DelVal still would have hosted this game. And then people would have really been pretty annoyed about the whole situation. It's it just, there, there's got to be a better way. Or if you're going to use strength of schedule, you need to understand what's happening behind that number or those numbers. We do after this number of years, but I'm still going to tell you in a 10 game schedule, no, it's not useful. It really isn't useful for conferences that get one out of conference game and the rest of their games are going to all be 500 basically in the calculation. It's just the way it is. That's the calculation. And when you go to six team conferences, because that's where we're going, and they're going to play five out of conference games, you're going to have these wacky, wacky disparities in strength of schedule. You'll have some teams at 650 and some teams at 350. And that's crazy. Whereas these other teams are trapped right around 500, no matter what they do. It's got to be rethought out. Not only do we need more teams and more access, but we really need to consider what we're using to really balance these teams ultimately. And this whole results isn't score thing, enough. Seriously, enough. That's a better indicator than strength of schedule, to be oh honest with you. God. Are you kidding me? Ugh. So the process is definitely not broken, but it's hobbled right now because every year we mm -hmm. seem to do different things with it and the consistency predictability and transparency are beginning to waver a little bit and it's not healthy for the game beginning yeah
Go ahead. You, you, you want to continue that? No, no. Just it. It. We keep having the same. What's the definition of insanity? I mean, <laughs> doing the same thing over the and same over conversation. again. Conversation. Uh, it's been a few years running. So there's some something's wrong. It needs a change. Hey, Ken Zero, I, I think, began affecting things positively in his time there. I'm not going to lie about that. I, I think he was he understood the math behind the whole 10-team conference situation. And so they didn't always follow that strength of schedule number because they understood it was convoluted sometimes, to their credit. We had a rack supposedly change, or their uh, ordering cha- changed because they didn't honor strength of schedule the way that the national committee felt should have happened. That's, that's really what we've been told here by multiple people that what you saw in the region two uh, regional rankings was not what got sent down from the rack. And again, it's allowed, it's permitted, but why? Why did that happen, this go around? Strength of schedule, really? Or what we call strength of schedule? In terms of the metric, I, I just I don't get it anymore. And when we go down to four, then three pool C teams, if we don't increase the field size really quickly here, this conversation is going to get even worse. I fear. We'll see. We have questions from uh, Twitter about uh, the playoffs, etc. Uh, why don't you go ahead and uh, hit me with uh, a question or two here and answer them with me, sir? Well, I think the first one was from our uh, friend Antoine Cuff, Cuffy Cakes. Uh, he, he always likes to throw stuff out there, and and he basically was saying that you know, looking down down the road, maybe this is more of a postseason question. But who do we think from this year's field will be back again next year? Well, getting to sit around the table with the Horn family on Saturday evening. I will tell you that Trinity's got to be one of those teams because they're bringing a lot of guys back. They've all decided uh, pretty much those or almost all of those that can, can come back for a fifth year that they're going to do so. Tucker Horn being one of them. And he made that clear on Twitter on Sunday night uh, without me having to say it, which I was glad about because I, I hate breaking the news in that manner uh, when it's a personal announcement that should be made. And he did so. Good for him. Uh, so um, he will be back. Uh, Raider Horn's mustache may not be back. I don't know if you noticed, but he shaved it between the end of the game and afterward. Um, and on the sideline, I know he had it still because as I snuck into the player's box area to uh, take some last-minute video, I looked behind me and I'm like, hey, nice mustache, dude. And he pushed me, basically, after I said that to him. So, hey, Raider. Um, but no, it, it, Trinity will be back, I think. Uh, they have a strong team. They had a strong team this year. It's got to only go up from there. Uh, what do you think? Who, who's your pick? Yeah, I mean, I think other than the sort of usual suspects that we see kind of year in and year out, I mean, like the Mountain Unions and the Del Vals, um, you know, I'm curious to see what the potential lifespan of this Wartburg program is because they've really sort of had a breakthrough season in the ARC. You know, once again, with all the extra year of eligibility, it's hard to tell you know, how many people are coming back or not, but they seem, um, them and maybe Aurora, um, given their run this year, looks looks really interesting. I mean, you know, the St. John's and the Bethels are not really, you know, surprised that they will potentially be back. The Mary Harden Baylors, maybe after all this talent graduates, uh, you know, who knows? 
there's been some changes in the ASC that that may help or hinder them. Um, but yeah, I would say off the top of my head, maybe Wartburg or, or Aurora, just based on the seasons that they've had this year. Do you think the ASC survives the teams leaving uh, kind of in mass right now? Or do you think that Harden Simmons and Mary Harden Baylor survive Division Three in this whole equation? Or does one of them or both of them go and do a St. Thomas maneuver, basically, because they almost have to based on where they're located? Yeah, I mean, I think that possibility is <laughs> very likely, um, especially if there's no one down there to play them. Um, you know, the nice thing about the ASC is that there's at least a lot of local teams and keeps the travel costs down. And now, sure, you know, the crew will fly up to Wisconsin every once in a while or what have you. That They're not afraid to go on the road. But if they can't schedule games, then, yeah, I think the possibility of them saying that, you know what, hey, it's been fun, but we're going to we have to move up to find opponents that that could definitely happen. Yeah, I mean, the Wesley model from back when, which was they would have to fly half the time to their away games or help pay for home games, basically, for travel for other teams. Yeah. That's just, it's not really in the cards for teams in it's this day and age. Not for no. D3, nope. So I'm curious to see how this plays out, ultimately. I, I hope they stay. I, I think it's it, what happened to St. Thomas with BS. Uh, Thomas Moore, uh, to a certain degree, was not exactly, I, I understand some of the, let's say, unpretty scenario uh, behind the scenes on the Thomas Moore situation, but at the same time, yeah, it's, it sucks losing teams that uh, you know you respect out there, especially football teams. So uh, hopefully that does not happen here. What's our other question? Yep. Uh, has there ever been a first time or first year head coach of a D3 program to win a national championship? Because we have a few that are in the field, at least one that I can think of off the top of my head. Uh, Lance Leipold. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, that, that's who I was thinking might be the case. Him or Bull. You know, I think Bullis had, um, when he inherited the team, he might have taken them back also. But Whitewater was the one that sort of popped in. I mean, Karras had been coaching for a while. Um, let's see when, when then his. When, huh? Dart didn't. Yeah, uh, Vince. The Vince, maybe? can't remember exactly the years that they we'd have to look back it might have been yeah we'll, we'll put this on twitter eventually we'll do our research on this one uh and but the, yeah, the, the answer is yes it's clearly yes there has yeah, been first year coaches that have done this not a lot though no obviously not for good reason so uh there's that so friday we will have a live show uh you know, I'm not going to tell you where I'm going quite yet because I have to uh, dry the ink on the stuff I'm trying to get done with respect to that. So uh, maybe this week only on four Twitter. Possibilities. <laughs> true, very <laughs> true. Games. You all have a 25 percent chance of getting the mayor. Yeah. <laughs> Get the poll. Get the poll up, Frank. You know you want to. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, but uh, we'll reveal that uh, during the week. We'll have a couple guests on our Friday live show. We'll pick the four games with a little bit more discussion explanation than Lightning usually allows for. And uh, we'll kind of begin to break down the season generally because it's a lot to break down and it's going to take a few shows to do that. Uh, we're dwindling in terms of number of shows left here, folks, obviously. Yeah. Uh, when we get to Stag Week, we'll probably just do our live show from Annapolis 
uh, that week and uh, just you know recap the two games that led to uh, that because they're both ESPN Plus games. We have limited ability to show the highlights at that point, but uh, we will you know pick the stag ball. Maybe have a guest there and everything else, and uh, just kind of entertain you and try to uh, do what we do here, which is shine the spotlight on especially the players, the Division Three, and the coaches, obviously as well. So until Friday, we will see you. Be safe out there and get ready for some more excitement as round three, for as much as you think you know what's going to happen, you probably don't. And that's the season called 2022. See you soon, folks.